0: This week, the government published the second interim report from Judge Yvonne Murphy's Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes. Murphy recommended that the redress scheme for institutional child abuse be extended to some of those who lived in the mother and baby homes. But the government has said no because they estimate that the cost could run to one billion euros. Would financial compensation at this point make any difference to the damage done? And if not money, then what can be done to undo the harm. In studio this morning, Jerry O'Regan is a columnist with the Irish Independent, Patsy McGarry is religious affairs correspondent with the Irish Times, and Susan Lohan is co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance. Patsy, I might start with you and the contents of this report. There was one phrase in it which confused me, which is that Murphy specifically said that she wanted to extend the institutional child abuse redress scheme to those who lived in mother and baby homes as unaccompanied children. What does that mean?
1: I expect, and it needs clarification, Sarah, that it refers to uh, children who are either left in by parents or by mothers, in this case, obviously, mm-hmm. and were under the care of the home itself. It's a very grey area. I mean, as discussed already, um, these children would have no memory of being there. Uh, it's quite—it's not clear how you defined what their experience was, whether they were affected by that experience, having no consciousness of that experience. Um, and so its it's just unclear where the Commission is going where those unaccompanied children are concerned, when the primary uh, issue for most people who would be interested in and aware of what the commission is about would be the mothers and what they experienced in those institutions, uh, many of whom uh, were scarred for life by the experience, some of whom were there for varying lengths of time. Uh, and it would have been assumed up to this that the focus, they would be the focus of the commission.
0: Will you remind me what happened in the case of the Magdalene's, the women who stayed there?
1: Well, that's not under the remit of this commission. Mm. Uh, I mean, there are those who feel the commission's remit should be extended to include uh, women who were in Magdalene laundries, many of whom came from mother and baby homes or some of whom were put into mother and baby homes initially uh, to have children and they were transferred back to the laundries. This was uh, The Magdalene issue was dealt with. There were 10 laundries around Ireland involving four religious congregations. They were investigated by an interdepartmental uh, committee uh, under the chairmanship of Martin McAleese, and brought in its report in February of 2013. Uh, this was not a commission, it was a committee. It had, did not have the powers of Yvonne uh, Murphy's commission, which had powers of compelability. The McAleese committee um, was totally dependent upon the active and voluntary cooperation of the f- uh, four religious congregations involved and that they would produce their records. One congregation did not, it could not, said it had no such records, the mercies um so in a, in a sense it, it was about establishing what happened if you like mm. uh, in, in reality in those institutions but because of the limits of its powers there are those who were in the laundries and supporters who were never satisfied by the report of that particular committee.
0: Was there any compensation scheme for them? Did any of them get any this money? This was the
1: main uh, uh, good thing about that uh, committee report Is that, it, and, and many people feel that politically it was the reason for setting it up was to clear the way for a compensation scheme for women who had been in those institutions, uh, in those laundries. And Justice John Quirk prepared a scheme uh, whereby uh, women who had been in those institutions would get amounts from about, I think it was about 11,000 was the lowest uh, up to 100000 depending on the duration of their stay in, Mag- in Magdalene Laundry, what they endure there. Uh, they would get a lump sum of that range, in that range. Then they get a regular income every week. Uh, they get all the healthcare that they needed for the rest of their lives, uh, education and all sorts of supports. Uh, in many ways, a very fine scheme, mm. probably a better one in many ways than the one that was uh, the redress board, which was basically about just giving people a large amount of money and say Goodbye. Uh, I mean, fine, there are supplementaries uh, introduced for healthcare and whatever, but the main emphasis of just getting, giving people a, a load of money and saying goodbye. You, the state has no more to do with the issue. Uh, and that's about 700 women who've been in the laundries have received amounts of money from that Ju- Justice John Quirk scheme, which hasn't been hugely expensive either for the state is concerned. Uh, and in many ways it has been quite satisfactory. There have been some people who quibble about it, but in the main, it was the real justification many feel for the setting up of the the McAleese committee and it delivered but it didn't establish really it didn't have the powers to establish what actually went on in the
0: laundries Mm. although I did read now not all of that report the McAleese report but good chunks of it and those that had provided records there was actually a fair bit of information but they were obviously on the people that had decided to cooperate. Well, look, Susan Lohan, will you tell me a bit first about your own background and how you've right. come to this debate and what you would like to see out okay.
2: of it? Well, I suppose I'm the classic unaccompanied child, although I wasn't in a mother and baby home. I was an unaccompanied child in a in an infant hospital in Temple Hill and Black Rock, run by the, I always get confused, it's either the Daughters of Charity or Sisters of Charity, who ran one of the biggest adoption agencies mm-hmm in <laughs> Dublin. And I think this is a major flaw of the commissions of investigation in that um, private, the work of private adoption agencies or the activities of them, um, the role of state maternity hospitals, private infant hospitals, they've all been excluded. So we are absolutely perplexed this week at Adoption Rights Alliance that, on the, that Yvonne Murphy and Catherine Zapone have suddenly as you say dredged up this phrase unaccompanied children Um, and I think you know I think that's very very cynical because on the one hand it sort of um, reduces the experience of the mothers and somehow suggesting that well that's not really important right now but they've told other unaccompanied children such as myself um, and that would be um, an experience replicated particularly in Dublin because women in Dublin might have might have had their own bed sit somewhere, living, you know, we think of Rathmines, that whole area around Phibsborough. So they weren't reliant on parental uh, support to put a roof over their heads. They had jobs in Dublin. They were financially independent. So their children ended up in the nurseries of state maternity hospitals, Hollis Street, the Coombe, the Rotunda, um, and as I say, the infamous and somewhat notorious St uh, Temple Hill Hospital out in Blackrock. So we think the commission is... Uh, the report is contradictory in so many places, and um, it's it 's just really not clear what they 're getting at at the moment and I think um, the one good comment I would make or i 'm hope i 'm interpreting the report correctly and catherine 's opponent statement is that she 's suggesting um, as well as redress that we 're going to look she 's going to look at services and supports for the unaccompanied children in these places, accompanied or unaccompanied the big um, desire of people who, you know, ended up in an in a, in adoption um, is to have access to their complete files, starting off with their birth cert, knowing exactly how they were cared for in those homes, which could include um, whether or not they were um, involved in a, an illegal vaccine trial. And then finally, we want access to information on our families of origin. And should we wish... Um, And and some people don't wish to make contact with them. But for those who do wish to make contact, well, we're going to need a very, very comprehensive tracing service. But in the first instance, the biggest piece of redress that Catherine Zapone and the Department of um, Children and Youth Affairs could make is to give us full unfettered access to our files. And HUSLA at the moment are operating a scheme just where they're redacting everything. And I, I think it's very worrying that Catherine Zepone has referred to Thucla's role in all of this. I don't think she's aware of just how backwards looking Thustle is currently.
0: OK, two things on that then. So your point that this extends far outside mother and baby homes and the mother and baby homes extended far outside the Magdalene's. You know, where does it end then? Mm. If this was just a nationwide system that by any means mm. within families, a baby given to a sister or to a cousin or something like that, where does it stop?
2: Well, well I think I think it should start at the top, which is let's look at the number of children who were adopted. And very disappointingly, Yvonne Murphy has, you know, herself and her small committee have made this unilateral statement that they don't think the scale of that investigation would be a useful one to undertake. And yet, everybody in the country and international observers would note that Ireland operated a policy of forced adoption. In 1967, 97% of all children were taken for adoption. And other countries have... have Sorry, say that again? 97% of all non-marital children were taken for adoption. Now, that's a forced adoption policy in any, in any man or woman's language. In Australia, they've apologised for a rate of 60%. So we feel that should have been the starting point um, for this Commission of Investigations' work. And just by honing in on the very narrow spectrum of mother and baby homes, we're excluding vast swathes of people um, from the investigation. I, I was quite shocked at the estimates given by the uh, Yvonne Murphy and um, the commission is estimating that 70,000 mothers and therefore a greater number of children went through the mother and baby homes. At Adoption Rights Alliance, we've always thought that the overall population of adopted people from the formation of the state was about 90,000. So Mm. we're beginning to think, crikey, we've seriously underestimated the numbers here.
0: Now, and the other thing is uh, access to records and I completely understand why that would be so vital to you. I think probably more so than money, you know, but Mm. I haven't been involved in this personally so I can't really say. Um, But would a lot of those redactions possibly be to protect the privacy of the parents of origin who don't want to be dragged into all of this again, who don't want to be contacted. And th- this is something from their past. But you see, this is this is a supposition. This is a
2: prejudice that right. uh, suits official Ireland, that none of these mothers want to be contacted, that none of them want to talk about their experiences. In, in our experience at Adoption Rights Alliance, that's a, a minority. And even those women who start off saying, I don't want to talk about this, we've seen a lot of those women come back to us in the past few years since the re- revelations about Joom, since the film Philomena as well. That really kick-started the whole revisionist view of what women endured in those places. So um, it's, it suits official Ireland to talk about, you know, this you know, vast number of women who might throw themselves off O'Connell Bridge. I don't believe that for a second. And certainly the advocacy groups for... Uh, natural mothers such as Irish First Mothers or the Natural Parents Network of Ireland, their experience also tells them that the opposite prevails.
0: Gerry O'Regan, I suppose the discourse on this, as in the redress scheme for the institutions and the mother and baby homes, lies heavily on blaming the religious orders for the acts that they carried out The other side of it is, and Enda Kenny has referred to this in his own reaction to the mother and baby homes, is this was a societal thing. And as we've heard, it wasn't just about Magdalene's or just about mother and baby homes. It was a nationwide system operating privately and publicly with state or no state involvement. What's your analysis of how this happened (laughs) and what should we do now, if anything?
3: Well, I think there's two twin. There's two th- things really. One is it's impossible not to have feel the utmost sympathy and empathy with the people who were involved, whether it be the mothers or the children at the time. It's and one's instinct should be is that whatever the money involved, and maybe if we can restrain it from not costing a billion or whatever, that something should be done to right, if you like, one of the historical wrongs of Irish life. Having said that one has to take into account is that Ireland was not particularly unique. It had it had semblances of an extremely Catholic society and and social control by way of mothers who were married at the time and children. It was also the situation in Britain. um who was the um, is it, who was there with Tony Blair? Gordon Brown. Mm. He offered an apology in his time for the way um Unmarried mothers and children were adopted right up until, you know, the the early 1960s in the UK. Yeah,
0: there's a movement there, the Movement for Adoption Apology, which describes very similar um, stories of forced adoption in mother and baby homes. An
3: uh, An underlying dynamic in the entire thing was, putting it crudely, I suppose, is that until the arrival of contraception, Societies generally speaking, including quite sophisticated societies in Western Europe, even some of the Scandinavian mm-hmm. countries, where it, the state directly or indirectly got involved in a form of social control, and very often they got involved in some of the dominant churches in our case, it was obviously the Catholic Church, and so that anybody anybody in Ireland of a certain vintage certainly would re, would remember if you like, the incredible social pressures. And the social dynamic that was at work at the time, it had to do with everything, like inheritance, like perceptions of social respectability in a family. Now, that has all changed. Maybe it hasn't 100% changed, but it has changed significantly um, since since those times. And um, as regards the mother and baby's home here in Ireland, one of the things I suppose that perhaps is somewhat being lost is that sometimes... The parents made a decision to enter the home. Some on occasions, mm. and the other situation is that on occasions the parent of the child decided to adopt the child. And I, I, it's very upsetting now for obviously a lot of the people involved. But I'm presuming then there are legal rights on the part of the adoptive parents. Because as far as I remember, in 1950, we, we didn't have official adoption here until 1953, is it? Yeah, 52, yeah it was a 52 it, Act and it came in The 52 Act 53. came into effect mm-hmm. in 1953. So, um, but it's it, it's obviously a historically grey area. And I mean, the thing would be is to find out from Toosley exactly, because it is terribly traumatic for people and, one would think often unnecessarily so, that they're trying to find out records and documentation. And there can only be two reasons. One is that there are some legal restraints. I'm not too sure what that whole area is. Mm. And the other, which would be even more unfortunate, that the historic legacy of some of the authorities. And in this area, one doesn't want to be excessively bashing the religious orders. But whether it be by way of getting a spokesperson to come onto the national media and explain their case... Are in some cases providing some of the relevant, it's as if suddenly they washed their hands and, you know, like they've all got, like the Norbertines have gone away and, and are now back, back uh, whatever country they... Belgium. Belgium. Yeah. You know, like they were, it's as if they were never here. And if, if one want just moving it slightly forward, if one look at the current situation of Catholicism in Ireland, there's two areas which it has been badly let down. One is not paying up, and if mm-hmm. necessary, paying more from its vast wealth. That's the first Mm. point. And secondly, why not come out and argue their case, but but, but, uh, by all means, put it into the context of the times. Nobody has any problem with that. Nobody has any problem. We know that people drove with their daughters to the local mother and baby home and they wanted a mysterious cloak of anonymity thereafter to protect what they perceived as their good name and all that kind of thing. But certainly on those two fronts, they haven't done too good.
0: So, Patsy McGarry, where do you stand with... The question, I suppose, of liability, specifically with the religious orders who were running these particular homes or with the state, um, you know, for overseeing this whole system. Um, I suppose I'm just a bit concerned that if we stick entirely with religious orders, then all those cases that fell outside mother and baby homes like Susan's and like all the stories we know from our own villages, you know, of babies swapped around and forced adoptions. They all get pushed to one side. It's very complex, isn't it?
1: Well, as regards the institutions we're talking about, they were managed by and run by religious congregations. But the state had a supervisory role, which is what Bertie Ahern apologised for in 1999, which really triggered the Redress Board, uh, the Ryan Commission, um, and laterally then you had the Murphy Commission, as is known, which investigated the Dublin Archdiocese, Cloyne Diocese, and now the mother and baby homes. So there's a shared responsibility there supervisory responsibility on the state, on the behalf of the state, which was not properly implemented. I mean, there were reports uh, going back into the early decades of this state, um, very critical about some of the facilities and, and what they found in some of these institutions, but very little was done about it. So the state is liable in that context. But the people who are responsible for the neglect, the various abuses, etc., in those institutions were the congregations. It lies squarely with them.
0: So would you make a distinction then, and I think this may have been mentioned um, either in the report or in the cabinet discussions, that in order, say, to be entitled to compensation, should you simply have to show that you were there or should you have to show that there was some actual specific neglect against you? Do you know what I mean? Like if, if forced adoption was the nationwide system or if a baby died because of neglect. So it was yes, an adoption Jerry.
3: prior to 1953.
0: Well, well then. it was informal.
2: Uh, it was typically Susan. called boarding out. Yes. Um, and the, the children who went to various families, unfortunately, there was a lot of... Ironically, coming from the tomb home in particular, children ended up being cheap sources of labor absolutely, particularly in rural areas yes, absolutely the The homes could have been quite brutal but but there were some success stories from that time, and then in fifty two formal you know legal adoption was introduced but I think the issue here, even if You can't prove, I mean, had I been in a mother and baby home, I I couldn't remember what abuse I had endured, although there might be something on my medical file. Mm. Certainly, I have a medical file from the infant hospital that I was in and I have a file from Temple Street where I know there was neglect because I was a a non-marital child. I I have that uh, very clearly uh, documented. But the issue is that we adopted people, as as a cohort were denied the love and affection of their own families simply because their mothers were unmarried and that didn't that the loss of that love and affection and care didn't um you know stop after a couple of weeks you know when they were some some people were adopted and then went on to other homes the loss of that love and affection and care of their own mother is a devastating trauma and it's a lifelong trauma some people, you know, would, not would attest for, to... Not
0: for all adopted children. No, though. I was going to say, yeah, 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 some people
2: would attest to feeling that sense of loss and that, you know, the adoptive family doesn't necessarily take away from that sense of loss. I'm not saying that's mm. a feeling that everybody uh, expresses, but certainly it's, it's one that we've heard in Adoption Rights Alliance. But, and then... The, the double insult to adopted people is that here in the 21st century, when we have international conventions, both at e, e, UN and EU level, talking about the basic human right of knowing your family of origin, knowing your culture, knowing your own name, uh, the Irish state continues to deny that to adopted people.
0: Why do they do that?
2: Oh, well, it's, 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 it's a question of redress. They're absolutely terrified. It's quite clear to us that's that the the scale of this um scandal um and it's social engineering as as Jerry you know referred to earlier is that
0: legitimate though when you see the money that it would cost and the scale of the problem you know mm. is it legitimate of them to think but if we do this for every forced adoption this is this isn't 1 billion yeah. this is billions and years and years of lawyers and schemes mm. and commissions well and we've been
2: at pains to to tell uh, ministers of home that redress it's not one size fits all. Some people would be more than happy with just having, getting their information. For the mothers, uh, they would like a full investigation into why the state decided they were to be unfit mothers, merely of their mar- because of their marital status.
0: I suppose, Patsy McGarry, it's a question of damage. And... Uh, We've been talking about the adopted children, as Susan is here from the Adoption Rights Alliance. But um, the damage to the mothers and the trauma that was caused to them by having the babies taken away from them. And some of them never got over it.
1: No, I mean, an example would be Philomena Lee. I mean, who was subject to that great movie, Philomena. But the problem really with all of this in, in terms of redress is how you establish the value, if you like, of the abuse. How do you assess it? And uh, when it came to setting up the redress board in 2002, and rather preparing the legislation that set it up, the state had, uh, I mean, a number of motives. One was to stop this avalanche of applications to the courts, which would clog up the entire court system. I mean, let's not forget that 15,000 people did receive redress. At at that early stage, the figures were 1, 2, Uh, 3,000. There was about 3,000 when they concluded the the indemnity deal with the religious congregations, for instance. So it had a, a sort of a double motive: get money to people, but also stop it from clogging up the court system. But the the corollary of this is that the the abuse was, I mean, never tested. There were uh, waiting systems based on a Canadian experience um, of, as to what level of compensation should be paid for what level of experience. I mean, eighty-five percent of the people who did receive money for the redress board, the amounts were under a hundred thousand. There were quite a, not that many, over 300,000. 300,000 is about the, high, the highest level of abuse that was uh, given to anybody. Uh, and the range of abuses continued from from sexual abuse, mainly in boys' institutions, to emotional abuse. Yeah, but but, but with abuse. the
0: mothers and the babies, um, now obviously conditions in some of those homes were appalling. Uh, I read the report on Bespra at the mm. time, like not now. There was yeah. a report done by doctors at the time about yeah, Bespra, yeah. and it was appalling. Um, but we don't seem to be talking about abuse. We just seem to be talking about the circumstance Neglect. of of the, that they were put into the homes and their babies were taken from them. That that's the act for which they're seeking redress. Am I right there
1: for the experience, the yeah. misery of the experience they endured yeah. in the homes? Yeah. Um, and again, I mean, in redress, there you're, sem- you're faced with a similar problem as you were with the. Uh, People have been in residential institutions as children, like in orphanages, industrial schools uh, and reformatories. Um, and I suspect a same, similar waiting system will be employed when mm-hmm. they do, if they do, introduce a redress scheme for women who've been in those.
0: Right. So, so two things then, going back to Gerry O'Regan's point that this isn't a case of Irish exceptionalism. You were talking in many regards about standard practice throughout Western Europe in the 20th century. Now, Susan's shaking her head and I'll come back to you on that. But, you know, there is a similar movement in the United Kingdom because there was coercion and there was forced adoption. Uh, In the United Kingdom, they've actually recently just had a a commission reporting on the children who were sent out to Australia and sent into sexual abuse and Mm -hmm. forced labour. It was awful. We know what happened in Canada. There were forced sterilisations in Scandinavia, you know, for unsuitable women. You know, how do you correct history of the Western
1: world? Where we were exceptional. Is in the residential institutions for children in Ireland, and I mean coincidental with the this state being setting up set up in the 1920s. In the UK, they got rid of these big Victorian institutions. We couldn't afford it; the state couldn't simply afford it, so they maintained these enormous. Institutions for children, reformatories, industrial schools and orphanages.
0: Right. So what about the mother and baby homes and forced adoptions then?
1: Well, I, I think the, there you would have had parallel experiences in other countries mm. to what did happen here in Ireland. Uh, I don't think the scale in other countries was quite to the same at the same level as yeah. in Ireland, mainly because of the social attitudes here, the degree of social conformity here, mm. uh, the, the lack of education uh, in this country and the dominance of a particular ethos, which yeah. basically regarded anybody who was uh, having sex outside marriage uh, as in mortal sin uh, and, mm. and a child who was born of such a union uh, as been somehow tainted or stigmatised.
0: Jerry, perhaps might the point be, and I know Anne Ferris, who was herself adopted and then had a baby in a mother and baby home herself and, mm. and had to give her child up for adoption. She's been talking about some kind of truth and reconciliation thing that what's important here is acknowledgement, you mm-hmm. know, and for people to hear their stories. And again, I'm torn between absolutely seeing how that would be so important to somebody, to have it named, to have it acknowledged what happened to them. And yet all I see then are legal bills. Um, Well, you see, the problem
3: usually is when you have truth and reconciliation, it means apportioning blame. And if you have a situation whereby blaming is being apportioned, then the person who feels they're being singled out will in actual fact take measures to defend themselves and often it will be legal measures. Like take, for example, if Sister A.N. Other was in the tomb baby's home back in the day and she went in there and she said, I was part of a network, a set up with a terrible reverend mother. There was a particular ethos in relation to looking after babies and all the rest of it. But I certainly played my part and I did everything humanly possible to make life as good as possible for both the mothers and the babies. Therefore, then, in this we can prove the contrary, she's entitled to her good name. And part of the problem to an extent is because of the understandable emotion bound up with all of this is that there's a tendency to to, to see global good and global not so good. So, for example, we all know those who went to convent schools, girls and all the rest of it. Some of the nuns were not that great. Others were very good and um, self-sacrificing in trying to push people onwards. I went to the Christian brothers myself. I could tell exactly the same story. Um, So, therefore, it's very difficult then to particularly from this remove, this distance, to try and actually strictly apportion blame. Now, for example, the state had an an overarching view of the mother and baby's home. It has an overarching view today of hospital care. There are long waiting lists. There are lots of people fairly seriously ill uh, looking for all sorts of medical treatments. Mm. They're way down the queue. What is the state doing to protect them? and going back to the mother and baby's home possibly the singular um critical issue in the entire thing this was to do with people in the main who had were poverty were in a mm. trap of poverty in a country which was fairly riddled with poverty we all know from recent stories as well is the more mid, the more affluent people here had their own problems and their own ways of solving mothers and babies. A lot of the thing was getting rid of the daughter over to England and getting the, the the child adopted and fudging the whole thing so as that the family could continue their existence here in Ireland.
0: Yeah, and we were talking as well before the show about some of the pressures that it might not just be religious or maybe it was tied up with the religion. If one daughter was known to have been pregnant, the effect that this might have on the rest of the family, you know, the contingent effect, yeah, yes. contagion. But, yeah. but uh,
3: this, this was what, what was it. social behaviour attitudes in the United in, in England, in the home counties in England, show that right up into the nineteen fifties, getting pregnant in a family was a major issue outside of marriage. Outside yeah. of marriage yeah. was a huge issue in sophisticated Shropshire, Kent, um, uh, the Cotswolds, uh, the entire in, well-heeled. Protestant English families were concerned about their good name and they were concerned that it would it would damage the future marriage prospects of the daughter who got pregnant, mm-hmm. that it would actually put a taint on possibly other daughters in the family. This is all odd now looking back in it from this remove. But pro- Protestant societies had exactly sure. The, rel- the We all know the legacy of Victorian Britain mm. and um, um Jane Austen and respectability and all the rest of it. And social respectability is a big issue. It's, it's still an issue. It's now that moved on to other things. But it, that was a big issue at the time. And the one other thing I would say is possibly uh, another area in all of this is where the mother and the family wanted to give up the child for, a, a, um, mm. wanted to go to the mother and baby home, wanted to give birth to the child and wanted to give the child up for adoption.
0: But so that's in Susan, the absence
2: of any alternatives.
0: Yeah, um, but sorry, just Susan. Yeah. On the question of blame, yeah, you see, who do you blame? Do you blame the the mothers for giving in, the fathers for abandoning them, the mm. the mothers' parents for forcing them into this, the religious orders for yeah. running the system, the state for turning a blind eye to it? I, I think it's you know it's, it's it was a joint enterprise between state and church
2: the The Church dictated uh, the moral values that everybody was expected to adhere to, so um it, it's you know, as the Americans say you can't fight city hall, but if you're fighting church hall as well, that's incredibly difficult, particularly in in smaller rural towns where maybe you know, the imprimatur of the parish priest was necessary for somebody to, uh, you know, secure employment and retain employment. So families found it nigh on impossible to resist that huge pressure. We all know of parish priests, curates, even local guardi coming to people's houses saying, listen, we hear young Mary there is, uh, is pregnant. Well, you know, the mother and baby home is a couple of miles down the road. You're going to have to bring them there. Now I think it's uh,
0: yeah, but without that, um, you know, you still had you know, it's a middle-class parents, the panic of the the yes. stigma, a fear about property rights and land and inheritance and all of that. You know, there's a big argument that a lot of this was driven by property, not just well, no, religion. I, I think
2: actually, I think the whole uh, question of property rights. I think that falls. I think that falls into focus now. I think particularly in rural areas, people are concerned, well, if the the eldest child of the family, the non-marital child, were to suddenly appear, that he or she would have um, inheritance rights yeah. over the property. Now, as it happens, the 1952 Act states very unequivocally that once a child is legally adopted, it is as if they are born to their adoptive parents. So the inheritance demands, mm-hmm. as it were, fall within the adoptive family. Now, I'm, I'm very aware, however, that um, many parents um, who lost a child to adoption have been very generous in their own wills and have actually made bequests to the children, lo- child lost mm-hmm. to adoption. And I think revenue take a certain benign view of that. But, you know, I've been doing this for 17 years. I can still count on the fingers of one hand... The number of people adopted people who've ever said to me, "Well, I'm going after the estate mm. um, the anger they feel is with is with the state and church for the denying them their identity as I said in, in, a, in a climate where we all know the importance of identity for psychological well-being
0: and do they, are they ever angry with uh, their adoptive parents? Um, and does it tend to fall on the mother or the father? The father's are so absent in oh, all you mean of the, this. the natural parents, the, the natural parents. The natural parents, yeah. yeah. Um, How do they feel about them?
2: In certain cases, yes, I've encountered anger, but i that's usually when there's been a misunderstanding of the circumstances in which the child was taken for adoption. And we all use that phrase readily. And I think, as Patsy said, you know, the film Philomena, that really reorganised the narrative in everybody's heads. Um I find I find men actually are more angry to begin with because they feel that they were abandoned by their natural mothers. Um and even you know when you when you would sit down with somebody like that ask them what they know of their the circumstances of their adoption and you know you explain the historical narrative that anger can still remain at a sort of cellular level because as I said for some people it's it's very traumatic the loss of their mother and Certainly in mother and baby homes, I'm aware of hundreds of children who didn't leave those homes until they were two plus, particularly those who were trafficked to the US because it was easier to get a walking, chirping two-year-old onto a a jumbo jet than it was a, a babe in arms. Uh, one acquaintance of mine, she was six before she was trafficked to the US in the most incredibly dubious of now, circumstances. Now, you're using the
0: word um, trafficked there. Yes. Um, was there anything remotely legal about those who were sent abroad to America? Was it legal at the time? No, it and, wasn't. OK, so how was it achieved then? Because uh,
2: It was a classic Irish solution to an Irish problem. Uh, what the Department of Foreign Affairs did they issued uh, passports for the children who were going to America for adoption and they didn't transact the adoption here in Ireland the children were adopted in the United States because the 52 Act specifically outlawed um, foreign adoption or inter-country adoption as we call it now.
0: So sorry, you're saying those um, ones that were sent to America are you talking about then post the Act or pre the Act? Uh,
2: post, well both actually. Yeah. Um because we're very, very clear that it was it was done for a profit motive. Because the children of the Americans, um, they they talk about you know regular begging letters, really uh, or solicitation letters, arriving from the religious orders who ran the mother and baby homes. They were the, the main culprits were Sean Ross Abbey and Besper and Cork because they were so near to Shannon. Um, and they would be aware even within their own families, you know, there's a narrative of, have you any idea how much we paid for you? Mm. But they, they certainly remember oh, the regular right. begging letters.
0: Would you recognise, and we'll go to a break after this, that maybe there was a sense that they were better off in America? They were going to good homes with people who wanted them in a wealthy society and they were mm. better off here than rotting unwanted and unacknowledged. But isn't that terrible? that we found, you know, as a society, we
2: thought it better to sell our children into an uncertain future. And these people weren't vetted. In fact, it's very, very clear from both American um, evidence and from Irish evidence that many of these American parents had been rejected by Catholic agencies in the US as being unsuitable um, parents. But you see that the the money motive paid, played a big part here. You know, I
0: have to go to a break, but I know we've talked before about foreign adoptions in Irish people adopting babies from developing world mm. now and surrogacy, especially involving Indian surrogates. Yes. I don't see the difference in terms there of consent. I, I completely concur with that. But we, we've discussed that before. Yeah. We might do it again. Patsy McGarry, Susan there was talking, uh, you know, about this private adoption system and, you know, babies who were who were given away. You know, at the time, it was the system and I remember being very struck um, by Mary O'Rourke's account of how she adopted her baby, Angus, which presumably was all completely legitimate at the time. Um, her doctor, Dr. de Valera, rang her up and said, you know, we have a baby from a suitable home for you. And uh, she, her husband, and their existing child went up and collected the baby and came home and presumably all the paperwork was done, but... It was this very, you know, informal system. And I guess if I was a mother of one of those babies and then I wasn't going to be included in a mother and baby redress scheme, you know, how would I feel? I just don't understand how you repair this damage to what was done on such a scale.
1: It's a very difficult uh, issue to resolve. Uh, I don't know either. Um, uh, I mean, where the mother was concerned and where the child is concerned, I mean... Certainly, uh, it is the case, uh, whatever the dubious manner in which the adoptions took place, that children, most of the children who went to the United States uh, did have better homes than they probably would have had here. Mm. Um, this is a very hard area to resolve in terms of just human trauma, human experience. There was an interesting element to the Ryan Commission, which hasn't been replicated uh, since then and probably needs to be considered in the context of mother and baby homes. there, was, there were two elements to Ryan. There was the investigative committee and there was the Confidential Committee. About 1,000 people went to the Confidential Committee, and all it did, or what happened there, was people simply told their story on the understanding that it would remain confidential to them and the people of the commission that they were talking to. Uh, over 1,000 people took advantage of that. I mean, uh, about 500 took, took part in the investigation uh, element of the committee commission. Uh, and it was hugely, obviously, important for these people that their story be heard, uh, and that they, it be recognised. In other words, that what they went through be acknowledged and recognised. And I think that this has to be emphasised again and again, that what is hugely important for people who've been through these various institutions is that what they have been through and experienced is acknowledged and is believed.
0: And actually on that, I want to play now just a minute of Enda Kenny, when he was apologising for the experience of the mothers in the Magdalen laundries. This is a
1: national shame for which I say again I'm deeply sorry and offer my full and heartfelt apologies. At the conclusion of my discussions with one group of the Magdalene women, one of those present sang
3: whispering hope. A line from that song stays in my mind.
1: When the dark midnight is over, watch for the breaking of day. Let me hope that this day
3: and this debate, excuse me, and a new dawn for all those who feared that the dark midnight might
1: never end.
0: And Gerry O'Regan, that was Enda Kenny, getting very emotional about the experience of the, the Magdalene women. And I remember Vincent Brown that night trying quite hard to persuade one of the Magdalene women that what was being done for them wasn't enough. Uh, But she was quite adamant that actually she really appreciated um, Enda Kenny's emotion and believed that he was fully genuine in the apology that had been offered to them. Is that, might that be enough if they just simply believed that someone was genuinely saying sorry on behalf of society so that even though everyone was to blame one person is saying it was wrong and we're well, sorry. Well, it's
3: something, but it's, it's, it's all, I mean, of course, any, how could anybody not apologise for it? But to an extent, one is apologising almost to an extent for Irish life at the time. There's a very good book called Saints, Scholars and Schizophrenic written by an American sociologist called Nancy Shaper. She lived in the Dingle Peninsula in the 1970s, not the 1930s and she she did an observational study there of of society back then and like for example she was struck by a lot of things but for example up until the 60s, we had the lowest rate of marriage in the developed world in Ireland. And that was part of social control. We had in many ways forced emigration, as we know. Yeah. We had the protection of the, the, the farm or the business or the shop for the one son. She identified there, for example, other social strands, that lots of families isolated one particular child as the kind of gum inverted comma in the family and he'd stay at home and look after the parents when they got older in the absence of home instead type arrangements at the time yes. so the magdalen laundries and all of that were part of a, a vast if you like vista of ireland at the time it was poor it was excessively dominated by church and state and by there are many finnegale there are many politicians in the finnegale party whose comments you can read Tom Garvin wrote a book, Why Was Ireland So Poor For So Long? Mm. And a lot of the social hierarchical politics of the time, a lot of Fine Gael people, uh, TDs were at the forefront, including Mr. Enda Kenny's party, if we wanted to be really historically accurate about it all. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very complex thing. and um, But certainly my own instinct is whatever could be done, should be done. It, it's one of the worst examples of the way Ireland was at the time. And uh, certainly what, 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 the, the whole area is saying they are about um, getting records and that. All of those should be made available unless mm. there's really strong legal argument. Yeah.
0: Not um, uh, Susan, no, we're coming to the end of the programme, but I know you want to mention something about transitional justice. Yes. You give us a final word on yeah, that. This,
2: this is a model that um, Adoption Rights Alliance and Justice from Magdalene Research has proposed. And it, it's one that everybody will be familiar with in South Africa. Um, after the fall of apartheid. And it it actually, I suppose it could be regarded as as the ultimate perp walk that people who we all know were responsible for neglect and abuse, they have to stand up there in front of their fellow citizens and admit what they did. Now, I know Jerry talked about the good name of certain nuns, but I can tell you the commission today, Yvonne Murphy, has a list of, you know, um, bad nuns and and people will all report a similar story and a similar experience of those nuns. And the the current heads of those religious orders need to stand up and admit what they did and face their accusers. And the problem with the Commission of Investigation currently is that they've they've refused um, the idea of holding public hearings to date, which is of great concern, given that they are fully entitled to do that.
0: Patsy McGarry, so what do you think is going to happen next? The government has said no to financial redress what sense for do you now. get for now? Okay,
1: and I mean, and they did make that emphasise that point that they're waiting for the commission to report before they really address the redress issue. In the context of the report, the report has already recommended that there be a redress scheme. It could be hugely expensive. Yet again, I mean, the one that uh,
0: would you do it anyway, irrespective of the
1: cost? I think I don't see a way out of it. But I think Ryan has set a precedent. Um, the amounts of money involved are colossal: one point five billion for Ryan alone. Uh, we may be faced with something similar. you are talking about something similar in terms of numbers. You're talking about over 15,000 mm. were compensated by the Redress Board following Ryan. But, mar- 13, but
0: aside from not being able to get out of it, morally, do you think it should be done?
1: I think it should be done.
0: Right. OK. We l- might leave it there then. Something so has to we, be done, I think. Most people yeah.
1: would agree with that. I would think you should look at the Justice Quirk model, really. It's a very, very effective one. you give people a certain lump sum, but guaranteed care thereafter in terms of health, education, housing, whatever. Yeah. Most of these are elderly people they deserve to be looked after now when they weren't, when they were younger.
2: And particularly the Excuse children of the former Bethany Holmes. Uh, um, I attended a funeral of a man only marginally older than myself last year, Victor Stevenson, who worked tirelessly to bring their issue to the forefront. And I think it's really in the context of Bethany that the Commission looked at the whole idea of financial redress now because those children, as they were back in the, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, they're dying now because so severe was their neglect that they've had lifelong
0: health issues. Susan Lohan, Patsy McGarry, and Jerry O'Regan, many thanks for joining me. Aidan McAlvey Research, Stephen Jordan produced. Thank you for listening.